Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fantasy Keto Podcast. This is episode 76. Jackie, it's great to be joining you again today. Yeah, that's twice in a month. How's that? Well, we, we managed to, you know, work through the time zone differences, Jackie. Yeah, and I must say that very shortly while we're talking, um, Ben's going to be getting up and getting ready to the work because we're doing this earlier in my in my morning than I would normally be around but he's getting ready for work so if you can listeners if you can hear creaks and cracks as uh, I'm talking then that's Ben walking around his room yeah and it's good to see that the young man is getting up and making making his way off and um, making his way in the world it's really good and we don't mind a few creaks and groans from from him making his way in the world (laughs) yeah and the other thing I was going to say, Lou, is that we've had, I don't know if you've been noticing, we've had some really lovely comments on the social media, all, all sorts of social media on Instagram, on Facebook, in our Facebook group, the Fabulously Keto Facebook group. And and even in some other groups, we've had some comments about the podcast. And I thought it'd be lovely if the listeners would actually go on to their podcast app and leave a review on there. So... I think we only get to see the ones that are on Apple, maybe. Um, but it would be good to see some some more reviews. So we'd love that. There go the creeks. Yeah. Good morning, Ben. Um, yeah, it, it is lovely. And the feedback has been really encouraging for us to sort of know that we're we're making a mark, we're making a difference. And that's really what the aim of this podcast is really to pay it forward, you know, from our own experiences and it's really lovely to to hear that feedback from you um in the various platforms but um yeah the the reviews certainly help promote the podcast and to to reach a wider audience so yeah, yeah. so should we talk about graham we should talk about graham now uh we were you were saying Jackie that graham was recommended to us by one of our fabulously keto admin uh, Emma Sol, who's also been a um, one of our podcast um, guests as well. So shout out to, to Emma for recommending Graham. And Graham is an Australian, so it was really great to be recording um, the podcast with him in two the same time zone, which makes a change. Was it the same time zone? Well, it's similar. Know, it's still quite similar. a big difference. Okay, so I'm in Melbourne and he's in Perth, so there's a three-hour time zone difference, but not as big as you and me. No, very true. Similar time zones. Yeah. um, Yeah. 
it was yeah really lovely to to hear all about Graham's story. Yeah, the thing about Graham is he reduced his sixty kilos and one hundred and thirty two pounds, but it wasn't particularly through a low carb or keto way of eating. He came at it from a different approach of using fasting and intermittent fasting and time restricted eating. So that was really good to get a different a different story. It is. And I, I think that that's a really great way that the Fabulously Keto podcast comes at it, that we're not obviously, even though we've got, you know, keto in the, in the, in the title, you know, we are embracing the diverse range of eating approaches, but ultimately for the benefit of people's, you know, regaining health and wellbeing. So, um, again, you know, while he is restricting through sort of time restricted eating and fasting, approach his regaining of his health and well-being was ultimately the you know one of the the takeaways from from this interview but mm. we'll hear more about that from graham yeah so as he's a fellow aussie why don't you oh he's not he's he's from new zealand but well living claim- in australia <laughs> like all good australians we'll claim um australasians um yeah our our counterparts from New Zealand as you know Aussie or Fozzies you know by Aussies but um, yes you're right so Graham was born in New Zealand but he is from Perth Australia and he's married to his lovely wife Louisa which we'll hear about in the podcast and they have four adult children he is the best-selling author of the fasting highway as on the Amazon um, category list his insights and passion for intermittent fasting came from living a successful fasting lifestyle for himself, losing an incredible, as Jackie said, 60 kilos, 132 pounds. He completely turned his health in a stunning transformation over 15 months. Graham has followed a low-carb, low-sugar way of eating for over four years after overcoming chronic addictions to sugar and fast food, which had dominated his life. He understands the daily struggles that overweight and obese people face daily and how debilitating they are. He also has an intimate understanding of what it is like to go on such a huge weight loss journey and live the highs and lows and to finally find success in a healthy lifestyle after being morbidly obese for his whole adult life. He has been in maintenance now for two and a half years and has experienced health benefits that were unimaginable to him before discovering this way of living. He is the host himself, a fellow podcaster of The Fasting Highway, on which he has interviewed over 120 people from all parts of the world. Graham is known as a person who practices daily kindness always and has helped countless people around the world regain their health. Well, listeners, we hope that you enjoy his story. Welcome, Graham, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here and I love your podcast very much. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. That's high praise coming, as we'll hear um, from another podcaster, a fellow podcaster. But we always begin our episode with where in the world are you? Sure. Um, well, I'm in Perth, Western Australia. I've uh, lived here for some 37 years, and originally I came from New Zealand. So here I am in Perth. 
Yeah. And Jackie, it's really lovely to have a fellow, as we say, Australasian um, with us today. So um, I'm feeling quite connected with another fellow um, fellow down under person, um, seeing as I've recently returned back to Australia myself. So it's it's great to, to be in the same time zone. Well, similar. It's three hours difference between Melbourne and Perth. But, um, yeah, it's really good to have you on. So, Graham, yeah, thanks. the... Interesting thing is, you know, here you are being interviewed, a podcaster being interviewed. Um, You've got, I must say, an amazing story, and especially for some of the listeners outside of um, Australia and New Zealand, you know, to be able to share your journey with us today. So why don't you tell us a little bit where you started and then we'll delve a bit deeper into where you are now. Sure. Thank you. Uh, Well, I guess I'll go back quite a few years to when I was about 14, 15, and it was a conversation I overheard between my parents and my mum said to my dad that Graham's getting really fat. And that really sent me into a tailspin through my teenage years. I mean, these people were my heroes and for them to say that I was fat and it was the first time I really heard anybody say that about me. And I guess I just started eating more and more and mum and dad bought a convenience store in New Zealand. That didn't help that I was in there for three years. And that's where I formed some pretty poor relationships with food. Um, I sat in a storeroom for three years, drinking gallons of Coke every day after school, eating chips, lollies, you name it, all the wrong things, pastries, pies. And I just started stacking on more and more weight. And as I did that, my school life became unbearable. Um, I suffered a lot of bullying at school, uh, shrew being obese, because in the mid-70s, there wasn't a lot of kids at school that were actually obese. And so... I really copped that and my school life became a cage fight nearly every day. I was getting into fights with bullies and that, just trying to get my way through school. I couldn't leave there fast enough. And basically I went into my teen years and I was still sort of suffering that a bit after I left school. I remember my first job I got, I worked in a butcher shop and um, a guy, a manager employed me and the owner came and he said to the manager, what's that fat slob doing working in my butcher store? And so that discrimination was just really just really coming along all the time about my size and my weight. And I was quite depressed about it. I didn't really have a lot of friends. I certainly didn't have any girlfriends to speak of or anything like that. And that was quite depressing. And then at 19, I got quite sick. I had rheumatic fever. Um, I nearly died. Uh, I was in hospital, got to the stage of the last rites, the whole box and dice. Anyway, I survived that. But I'd lost a lot of weight, a massive amount of weight. And I came out of hospital And it was like a whole new life. Nobody was bullying me. Nobody looked at me in the street. Nobody treated me any different. I got got a good job. I had you friends. I had lots of girlfriends. I partied my way through my 20s like we do. And that was all good. And then I started putting on the weight through my 20s, 30s, 40s, et cetera. And just through poor choices and those sugar and fast food addictions that I developed as a young man, they got worse and worse, particularly sugar. That was my real crutch. I just, anything that was sugary, I just loved the taste. I'd eat it and I'd eat it in spades. Um, I had a lot of closet eating issues. I was, I was developing, I was hiding my eating from friends, family, that sort of thing. I used to eat a lot of my car. I was going to the drive through three, four times a day and my weight continually was going up all this time. So roll the clock forward, I got into my 50s um, and it was about, Oh, January the 1st, actually, 2018, coming towards the end of 2017 before that, 
I'd been in Sydney at my in-laws and we had a week in Sydney and I was just out of control. My eating and my drinking was just off the scale. And I remember getting on the plane to come back to Perth and I thought I was going to explode. And I was sitting next to my lovely wife, Lou, and I really loved her. And I, I looked at her and I thought, you know what, if I don't do something, I'm going to die. I'm 160 kilos by this stage, 360 pounds. And I just thought, there's no way I will ever be able to continue. So I really thought long and hard about it. And I knew what my issues were. And I think most morbidly obese people do know why they're obese. You know, it's not a surprise if you really analyze what you've been doing all, your, all that time. And so I used sugar was my first thing I had to get rid of. So I just cut it off basically cold turkey. I got off the plane the other side. I was pretty laser focused, four-hour flight. I went home, I started reading about it, and I just stopped doing what I was doing. The drive-through, that was the easier of the two because I just stopped going there. I mean, as I said, I was going there three, four times a day. So that was a a habit to break. But the sugar, that was a different story. And in the next two weeks, as I was withdrawing, it was a hell on earth. I mean, I even got to the stage where I remember I spent two days in bed with a doona over my head. And I was going through the whole thing, the aches, the pains that you would, you would normally hear a drug addict talk about. And I just had so much of this toxic stuff in my system and I just had to get it out. So I fought through that, roll the clock forward, two or three weeks later, things started getting easier for me. And then I sort of was searching around thinking, well, okay, I'm getting this under control. But one of the biggest things for me was actually learning what sugar was in food, what carbohydrates were in food. Um, you know, I got the World Health sort of guide to how much sugar and carbohydrates you should have and all that sort of thing. And I was way over the scale. I mean, I was, I was at one stage, I worked out, I was having 120 teaspoons of sugar a day in my diet. But I was eating, wow. you know, hundreds of carbohydrates. And I thought, I just got to stop this, and which I did. And mainly a lot through soft drink. And as you know, people underestimate the damage that soft drinks can do to our weight. Um, Coca-Cola, 10 teaspoons of sugar in a can. I was drinking six, seven those a day. So there's 70 teaspoons right there. So when I cut this down, I started thinking, well, how am I going to do this long term? You know, it's, it, I'm getting through this, but what am I going to do now? And then I was searching around on the internet one day and I found out about intermittent fasting. And I read up about this thing called one meal a day lifestyle. And my reaction at the time was, what sort of loonies do this? Like, that's crazy. Who only eats once a day or who does intermittent fasting? You know, it's, I'm a guy that was eating 30, 40 times a day. And so the more I researched about it, I just liked the simplicity of it, that you fasted for a period of time, giving your organs a rest from digesting all day, yeah. allowing your cells yeah. to regenerate, and just cleaning your body out and then going into a period of eating. And I thought right from the get-go that I was going to eat pretty clean. And that's what I did. And so... I cut the carbohydrates down, the sugar. I started intermittent fasting and everything sort of started coming good and my weight was falling off me and I, I was feeling amazing. And I, I just thought, I'm not sure whether this is going to be something that I'm going to be able to do forever. But after a couple of months, it was the non-scale victories, as we call them, and the health benefits that really started getting my attention. I mean, I had psoriasis for some 20 years on my body my arms, my elbows, my knees, and it started disappearing. And I thought, there's no way. And I was told I was never going to get rid of it, right, by three specialists. And after three months of fasting, 
it started going away. By the six-month mark, it had gone completely, vanished. And that blew my mind. Um, other things were happening, um, you know, just feeling better, mental clarity, sharpness, vision was even improving, if, if people can believe that. Just everything. Everything was feeling better about myself. I started looking better. My skin, the weight was falling off me. So that's basically how I started. And at, at that time, I was really watching what sort of carbs and sugar intake I was having because that did the damage. Yeah. So it, when you, if we can go back to the part where you you were coming off the sugar and you were going through this withdrawal phase, what what kept you focused and kept you going? Because it can be at that time when people say this isn't working. I'm not. I don't feel well. I'm going to go back to what I was doing before. What kept you going through it and pushing through? Well, I was purely driven by love, to be honest. Um, my wife Lou, who I love dearly, I, I just had to do it for her because I and I was doing it for me too because these journeys, as you know, you have to do for you, but. Primarily at that stage, it was out of love because I loved her so much. And I thought, I don't want to die. I want to spend the rest of my life with this woman and I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight and get this out of my system. And Lou was really great. She was supportive. We got all the sugary stuff out of the house. We read all the labels. We worked out what was in what. You know, we knew what we had to do. And I knew what I was doing wrong. I mean, as, as I was talking about before, obese people know what they're doing wrong, but they just can't stop. Mm. And that was me. I had no mm. off button, right? So that was, to answer your question, it was purely out of love. I like that. Yeah, I really have to commend you for that because I think, you know, that's your why. And Jackie and I have sort of spoken about that, that once you have the clarity of being able to articulate your why, then that gives you that hope, you know, I need to do this because I want to spend the rest of my life with, you know, for you, um, you, you know, your 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 beloved Beloved Lou, and what's not to love about Louise's? Like you know, like it's we're all we're all good people. But something that sort of I think maybe a little bit different for me, like being a, a morbidly obese woman as I was, I, it took a while for me to know what it was that I was doing. You know, the, the and it was the help of I, I found a really great psychologist who specialised in disorderly eating. And once I knew then what the triggers were, like I knew what the outcome was, I was morbidly obese. And, it, you know, similarly, there was emotional issues there. And it, once I knew I could get the clarity on the on those triggers that, oh, right, so there was this happening, then this happens because of the thoughts, the feelings, and then the behaviours that, you know, the, the comfort eating as I was doing but, you know, I had buckets of stress. I had, you know, I was a busy single parent with a child with special needs who was doing, you know, trying to balance this, you know, professional life and career and all this sort of stuff. It was just one big ball of stress for me. But do you think it had to sort of really start with being that really 10 to 14-year-old who was looking to their hero parents who, you know, it was that really where things started to unravel for you? Well, my earliest, earliest memory of anything connected to weight or how I felt when somebody said something like you're fat, that trigger, that's what I remember as my earliest memory. But the bullying I had at school, um, that was probably the hardest part of my journey because in the 70s, it just wasn't the kids that were bullying you. It was the teachers as well. 
we had a lot of ex-military guys that had come out of Vietnam. They were very tough. They were very disciplined. They were very mean. So they didn't tolerate kids that didn't look after their bodies and they weren't fit. So they were really mean to us, anybody that was overweight. So yeah, the school life was probably the biggest trigger for me, I guess, weight-wise. But once you get into that spiral, it's very hard to undo it. And then when I got sick and then weight came off, it was the first time I realized that people treated obese people differently to normal-sized people. And then I went through about, I don't know, 15, 20 years where I just thought it was the normal thing to do. And I never weighed myself once I got to a point because going back to then, um, those days, we didn't have scales that could weigh people that were over 120 kilos in the bathroom mm. in our house. We just, they didn't exist. You'd step on them and they'd go, ee, ee, ee. They didn't register. So I didn't go to the doctor and get weighed or anything like that. And the weird thing about my obesity right through my life, um, just to put you in the picture health-wise, I never really had any major health issues apart from the rheumatic fever when I was 19, which wasn't really obesity-related. But I didn't have any, like close to being diabetic. I never had my bloods were always good. Uh, I'd go to the doctor and they'd get very frustrated because they'd say, you've got great blood pressure you know, your cholesterol's good. How can this be possible? So that gave me the confidence. I thought, well, it's okay to keep doing what I was doing, which I did. And then I just got worse and worse and worse. But yeah, I never had any bad health markers, but certainly the spiral started at that age of 14 through my school years. And then I guess later in life, I just, it was just a, a culmination of events. Yeah. And it's, it's this addictiveness of food, isn't it, that keeps you going back for more, and particularly Coca-Cola. I mean, I noticed um, I'd go through phases of drinking Coca-Cola, and when I was in a phase, i tend to have one every day, and then I'd stop, and it would take a few days, and then I wouldn't think about it for ages, but I would only ever have one Coke. You know, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't out of control. There's me, the moderator. I can I can control these things, but um, it's you you can you can feel the addiction going. That you I need a coke. I need a coke. Yeah, I know. And like for me, but the problem was is I was addicted to them, but I didn't know it. Yeah, and I didn't know what was in them. It was only when I learned what was in them that it shocked me. Um, part of the story I should have mentioned is back when I was withdrawing. I watched a documentary, that sugar film, I'm sure you've seen it, uh, with the Australian filmmaker, Damon Garneau. And that really shocked me. I sat there and I was blown away. Oh, it's the first time that I realized how much sugar was in certain food types. And so the next day I went down to the supermarket and I knew that four grams was a teaspoon of sugar. And I spent three hours at the supermarket just looking at the back of packets. And then I thought to myself, well, hey, what, how's, what's the fastest way we can get sugar out of our bodies or cut down or whatever it may be? And I soon learned that by shopping around the perimeter of the supermarket and not going down the aisles straight away, you're cutting out 75, 80% of the sugar you're putting into your body from the groceries that you're purchasing. And so that was something that I did. And that was really turning the corner for me. So that helped me get rid of that. But once the education was uh, there for me to see. And I learned and I really studied it. What sugar was in food? What are the alternative names for sugar? I mean, as you know, you, we all see things that say 99% sugar-free or, or whatever, and then you turn them over and it's got like all these names and everybody goes, well, I don't even know what they are, but they're actually, you know, alternatives for sugar. 
the sweeteners and that sort of thing, which drive the addiction that people have for the sugar. So, yeah, definitely. Was were you drinking? Were you saying um, that was full, like full sugar coke, not not the no sugar or the the coke zero? Yeah, I think back in the in the mid seventies, I don't even think the diet drinks even existed back then. No. And then, um, yeah, over the years, and then I did move to the Diet Cokes later in life because I thought that it was better for me (laughs) at the time. I mean, I tried a few other things with weight and that sort of thing, all sorts of crazy things, a soup diet, you name it. But I'd never gone to any regimented things like, you know, a meeting or anything like that about counting points or any of that stuff. I just tried a few things. I'd done a few, you know, go out for walks and that sort of thing. But exercise for me just became really hard because the bigger I got the lazier I got and I just didn't feel like it it's really hard to move 160 kilos you know there's no I was going to say no shame in sort of saying look every day or every minute you're moving 160 kilos you're exercising and you're putting your heart under stress but I was just um thinking because just recently since well coming back to Australia uh, I, I haven't had any sort of like soft drink apart from maybe mineral water, but we went back to um, we went back to McDonald's and to have a bunless burger, and it came and it came with a with a drink and and a meal. So in a meal, it actually has a salad option. So there's so much that's changed in the last couple of years, and the syrup, the syrupy taste, obviously because it's in that post mix. Um, mixture that comes out of the fast food restaurants was just like you're just going like what the is there sort of you know um coke zero at, or in the in the diet coke it's just like it's so unpalatable anyway with the with the sweetness so that was a a new a new sort of re, re being reacquainted with with soft drinks and it's just like no thank you so, yeah i know what you mean and um it's been four years actually since i've been in the through a drive-thru or in a major fast food mm-hmm. store. It's been four years since I, I drank a, a soft drink like a Coke or something. Um, I just found better alternatives. That's all it was. Um, people say to me, oh, don't you miss them? Don't you miss going to the drive-thru? You know, it's almost un-Australian not going through and getting a burger and chips and after a big night on the turps. And I say, well, no, it's, it's not. It's just not something I want to do anymore because what I like to say to people is that I now eat what makes me feel my greatest eating whatever I wanted, which is a big saying in the intermittent fasting community, which I don't agree with, is what got me into trouble in the first place. So once I worked out, eat what makes me feel my greatest, eat the best foods I can and make my eating period in the day as worthy as possible, the wheel started to turn. Yeah. And when when you said earlier that you were drinking, was it just soft drinks or was it alcohol as well? Oh, no. Uh, beer. Uh, I was a real party boy, to be honest, um, going back in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. I was always known as the life of the party. Uh, I did drink a lot of beer, but I wasn't a consistent drinker. I never drank on my own. I was always a company drinker. Um, I used to, if people would come around, I'd drink with them. Uh, I'd go to a party. I was always the first there, the last to leave, basically. And people really gravitated to me because I was like that. And you know, I still like having fun, but I guess I was masking too my size as well by doing that at the time. And one of the things when I went through this period where I withdrew from the sugar and fast food and I found intermittent fasting was that I withdrew from the the social aspect of life for a bit in terms of not doing that. 
not going to the pub with my mates. And I found that pretty hard because that was the biggest downside of all, the, the social aspect, because I was such a social person. And so, but I also made a, a determination in my life that unless I stopped doing that like I was doing, then I'm never going to get to my health goals. And those guys and my mates and that, they would ring me and and say, look, we know you're not going to go to the pub, but we thought we'd invite you anyway. And I'd say, look, I'm happy to go to the pub, but I just won't be drinking. So, or I, what I did was I still had a bit of alcohol, but I wasn't drinking beer. I changed to vodka and soda, which obviously was a lot lower in calories and that sort of thing and better for me. And I just wasn't drinking as much. And so, yeah, that's my answer on the alcohol. Mm, yeah. There are some great like zero carb beers now on the market. Um, you know, there's better beer, there's the the big head beer. So you know, you know, there are obviously alternatives that that are available, but not obviously in at the pub or on tap. And um, yeah, so there are on the market there are, as you said, alternatives such as the spirits, uh, the white spirits as well. So yeah, it's something I um, haven't really looked into the zero alcohol beers because I just lost my taste for it. Um, mm. You know, I think the longer you go with the lifestyle like I'm leading, you really seek high quality foods that taste great and that sort oh. of thing. And I just don't get the enjoyment from drinking like I once did. And and now a lot of those people that I used to socialize with and, and drink, they're leading a similar lifestyle to me because they've, they've seen what it's done for myself. That's fabulous that you've encourage them to to make changes too yeah well um a, a funny story about that actually these three guys bailed me up in the pub after i'd lost about 50 kilos or uh, 110 pounds or so and they said listen we're having an intervention about your weight loss you know you've lost too much weight you're out of control and you know nobody ever sees you anymore and all the rest of it and i said okay so we went around and i got a guy to take a photo of us and we looked at the photo and i said what do you see in that photo and these guys all look fairly unhealthy because they led unhealthy lifestyles. And they said, yeah, we, we're getting you. And they never said any more. And now two of those guys, they took up fasting and leading a healthier lifestyle, living a sort of ketogenic lifestyle, if you like, as well. Um, and they had never been healthier in their life. They look great. So, yeah, that's been really satisfying. Just my example of helping others has been fantastic. Yeah. So it, you said you went to one meal a day. How did you structure that? And um, do you still do the same thing or have you changed it slightly since? Sure. Well, right from the start, because I thought, well, how am I going to work? So I didn't know any different. I just I just knew that, you know, I wanted to do this and I started. So I started with the 23 and one, right? right? Pretty like I say, all in or nothing for me. And I knew that I was getting home at five o'clock in the afternoon from work. So I'd get out of the car. I'd start by having an entree or a snack, if you like. Um, usually it was something like cheese and crackers. It might be something else, a bit of ham, whatever it may be. And then I would go through and I'd wait for a while, wait for that to settle. Then I'd have my main meal. If you like, like going to a restaurant where you'd have a three-course meal over a period of time. And then if I felt like it, I'd have something for dessert. And usually for me, that was something like Greek yogurt, handful of berries if they're in season, that sort of thing. And really, that's that's about all I was doing. And I just made sure whatever I was eating was the healthy stuff, the nutritional, uh, nutrient-dense for my body, uh, a lot of protein. Um, I was eating higher fats as well. 
And that's what I found was very successful for me. And I was lucky in the fact that I've been here in Australia and Perth. Um, we got access to a lot of great seafood, lobster, fish, you name it. So I was eating a lot of that. I uh, love eggs, bacon, you name it. So all those things that I was eating were working for me and the things that weren't, I was eliminating. And once I'd eliminated all the things that got me into the position of being morbidly obese in the first place, it was pretty obvious the wheel was turning. So I just kicked on with that. Mm. So during those 23 hours, what, what were you drinking? Was it just water or what uh, else no, did you drink? All I was drinking was water, plain sparkling water, no flavours, uh, black tea or plain green tea. And that's basically what I was doing because I wanted to get keep that insulin as low as possible. I didn't really know anything about what they call dirty fasting then when you put cream in your coffee and all that sort of thing. I had no idea what that even was. And I didn't feel like I needed it. And I found the fasting side of it okay. I mean, I just, as I'd work through the day, I was at the office and I only work with a couple of people and they don't eat a lot during the day. So that side of things was pretty easy while I was fasting. But then just trying to work out how I structure that window, as you were asking there, it was more like that three-course restaurant. Now, now that I lost the weight and I've been in maintenance two and a half years, I think you develop into a more intuitive faster if you like whereas you're eating to your truer hunger signals you're not watching a certain clock or a certain protocol no two days two days are really the same whereas when i was losing the weight i was pretty rigid through that time period what i was doing because i wanted to get to my health goals that i was seeking but now in maintenance it's much more flexible um, on holidays it's flexible because it's a lifestyle for me it's not a diet so I treat it like that. And I think it's important that if you do have the odd day where nothing goes perfect, as we all do, then you've got to give yourself grace and, and just get right back to what you are doing the next day. And really important thing in the fasting community is for people not to beat themselves up and, and go and do things like 40, 50 hour fast because they ate a couple of donuts on the weekend. I mean, that's just really detrimental to the mindset and um, can send you into a tailspin. But yeah, it's about self-love, self-care, and and just giving yourself grace in those moments. Yeah. So now in maintenance phase, having, you know, congratulations, lost your, your 60, 60 kilos. What are you doing differently? Are you, you know, what are, what are the tweaks that you've learned to adapt and accommodate? As you mentioned about being more, a little bit more flexible um, on holidays, but, you know, in terms of a the, what you're eating, has that changed? You know, you've mentioned that your palate has changed in terms of, um, you know, being attuned to sweet things and certainly with alcohol. Yep. What, what's, so what's changed? I guess by the time I got to maintenance, I was already pretty much at that point. Oh, I just wanted to eat what made me feel my greatest. And so with the 23 and 1 I was doing in the weight loss phase, I thought when I got to maintenance, I thought, well, I wanted to free it up a bit. As I mentioned, I was a really social person, so the weekends were important to me. And my wife, um, I thought, well, how am I going to sort of, you know, go to a few more things with her and eat with her and go to lunches and, and whatever? How am I going to work this? So what I decided to do was I did a 22 and 2 during the working week where I'd fast for 22 hours and I'd eat in a wider period, twice as long as what I was before. And then on the weekends, I opened that up to a 16 and 8, 
where I'd have two meals on that day so I could go to brunch with my wife or friends or family and just open up that social aspect of the weekends but still get that fasted because that was important to me because of the way I felt when I was fasting. I didn't want to give that up because a lot of people say to me, well, once you got the weight off, how come you didn't stop? You know, why didn't you just go back to doing three meals, square meals and balanced or whatever? And I said, well, I know what would have happened for one. For second, I just loved the way I felt when I was fasting. Why would I want to give that up? I'm giving my body a free car wash every day inside. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's, that's the reason why. And I just felt like 16 and eight on the weekends, open it up. And I guess even now going down the track even further, uh, another couple of years of maintenance, I'm definitely becoming more intuitive. I'm eating to my truer hunger. So some days might be 16 and eight. This is seven days a week. Some days might be 18 and six, other days, 19 and five, whatever it may be. I just, you know, open my window when I think it's time, as long as I get that sort of, you know, 16 hour to 18 hour minimum. And I'm happy about that. So I'm not really rigid about it. And I just keep an eye on my weight. I do weigh every day. Um, and why I weigh every day is it's more of an accountability uh, partner for me. It's been that from day one. And I don't even yeah. think about it. I just get out of bed in the morning. I go to the bathroom. I step on the scales. I look at it. And I have a goal range, which I stay in, which is about two to three kilos. So four to six pounds range up and down. So I sort of vary that. I don't think of a being in maintenance, you have to be at a certain weight. Like you don't have to be at a number because if you go over that number, then that's going to mess with you a bit. Whereas if you give yourself grace and have a bit of a goal range, it's much easier in maintenance mentally to sort of you know cope with the fluctuations that you will have. But yeah, if I find that I'm going over that, then I'll, I'll rein things back in. Yeah, that's what I do. I've got a, my leeway is seven pounds. And if I'm within that, I'm, I'm fine. I'm a yeah. little bit over, about a pound and a half over at the moment, but I'm not worried about it. It will come down. Yeah, I, I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm a abstainer. So Jackie's the moderator. So I'm I'm pretty much like you, like the not the all or nothing, but it, I just can't go there. Like I just if I open that window, then you know it's just like driving a a Mack truck through it. So it's it's a free for all. But I I have had the issues with have being fixated on that number, and obviously anything there. The range again, it's a bit loosey goosey for me. So, you know, because it's, I need to have that clarity of the discipline as well. So I, I think what I haven't heard from you about your, your fasting, sort of the fasting highway, the fasting regime is the, the thing that I love about fasting is I don't have to make a decision. I know that I, you know, as you said, I'm giving my body a break. And then when I open that window, it just frees up all this time. I love it because I don't have to do the dishes, you know, just really the planning. I'm just, you know, got this opportunity. There was just the flexibility. Um, it saved me money. Um, I think there's all these other benefits um, aside from the health benefits and, you know, reaching your health goals. But it was just all that lifestyle stuff that, that fasting gave me as well. Yeah. I agree with you. And my wife loves it because our kitchen's always clean for one. <laughs> it's not mess everywhere. Um, my car is always clean. My daughters used to call my car the pizza 
because it was so much rubbish in it and crumbs from eating and all that sort of thing. And my clothes, I'd always have like stains on my shirt where I'd been drinking chocolate drinks while I'm driving. I'd go over a bump or something. And, you know, I used to eat a lot of my car and it's something I completely stopped. And I think the mindless eating, you know, sometimes as an obese person that we don't really know we're doing at the time. I mean, things like sitting in front of a TV with a big bag of chips and you just keep going until you've eaten a whole bag. You don't just have a few. Well, that was my experience of it. Or the closet eating. Um, I remember I'd I'd eat breakfast at the house and then I'd drive to work and I'd swing into the drive-thru and I'd, I'd pick up a toasted sandwich and a coffee, not half an hour later. Those sorts of things. And then just because I was worried about starving to death on the way, way to work, I'd usually have a packet of chips stuffed under the seat of my car and to pull out if I needed them, you know, like I was going to die if I didn't eat for the next 30 minutes. And all those things, I had a lot of you know wrappers everywhere. And I remember I used to pay my girls sometimes to clean my car. And they called me out one day and had laid all the wrappers that they found in my car stuffed down everywhere. And that's what I used to do. I was a closet eater and I'd hide things. Um, sometimes I wasn't very good at getting rid of the evidence and they'd find it. And yeah, that was a real embarrassment for me and a shame. And a lot of my journey was definitely overcoming that closet eating that I was hiding from people. And once I was honest about it, and I think that's the most important part of when you are obese or morbidly obese is to be honest with yourself and say, Mm -hmm. I know what I'm doing. I know, I know what's happening and I really have to own it. And once you own it, it becomes a whole new world. But while you're in denial and you just keep putting your head in the sand, you're never going to help yourself. Have you had to do any emotional work either with somebody or just by yourself? How have you coped with that? No, I've never like spoken to a counsellor or anything like that. In hindsight, it wouldn't have been a bad idea at the time. But reality was that I just wanted to own it. I wanted to, as when I fought through that sugar addiction withdrawal, that was probably the toughest thing that I'd ever done for myself. And I thought, well, if I could do that, everything else is going to be okay. Mm. And then mindset, as we know, when you're trying to get your health back, is hugely important. For me, it's been 90% of what I've done. It's the mental aspect of the focus, the discipline. And uh, so people say to me, oh, you know, it must have been sort of pretty easy for you because you just stopped eating and the weight fell off you. But it's not like that at all. And we know that. I mean, you, we're still eating a fairly decent amount of food when we do eat, and, but we're eating good food. That's the difference. And we're fueling our bodies. And I yeah. think it's a bit like a car analogy. And like, you know, Bob and Fred have a car and Bob puts terrible oil in his car and his car runs like crap. Whereas Fred looks after his car and he puts really top grade oil in his car and his car runs beautifully. Well, that's no different to our bodies. And then once we learn that, then everything turns. And I'm sure you guys are the same compared to what you used to do before. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you have you ever done any longer fasts? So you, you were saying you don't need, to, you know, if you've eaten that donut, you don't need to go out and have a 50-hour fast. But have you ever tried any longer fasts? No, not really. Um, I'm more or less stuck to the 23 and 1 right through. It was one day I purely by accident, I went 36 hours because I'd got home late from work from a farmer's field day. And I just went straight to bed. I couldn't be bothered eating that day. Um, I like to eat once a day. That's my thing. 
Um, it's important for me. It's important for uh, those around me, my wife, et cetera, to eat with her in the evenings. And for me, I just never saw the need to do any. And I understand why people do it and the health benefits of it fully. Um, I really get it. And I know this sort of, you know, autography that people seek and all that from the longer fast. And many people do it for spiritual reasons or what it may be. But no, for me, I never done any longer fast than I needed to. Mm. No, it, um, it just obviously with overcoming the the eating, the disorderly eating, the the sugar addiction, that sort of certainly lent itself to you know making as we as you know you were saying off off air about being vulnerable. How did that sort of sit then with obviously this idea that you're meant to be the the man, the tough guy? You know, and certainly in Australian sort of culture, you know, we we have this persona of masculinity being, you know, blokey and hardy and tough and strong. But you really had to, you know, get in touch and be mindful and you've now become intuitive and sensing and feeling which is a bit of the antithesis of that Australian male image. Yeah, 100%. It's very hard. And as you know, males in New Zealand and Australia tend to hide their feelings. They're not as open as what women may be and who talk amongst themselves, whereas guys don't usually do that. Well, some do, but not a lot. I think it's got better over the years, but certainly um, going back to my younger days, that just never happened. Um, I guess my coming out, if you like, was March 2019, um, I went on the Jim Stevens Intermittent Fasting podcast story. Uh, it was episode 22, I think, if anyone wants to listen. But that was the first time where I really just thought, I'm just going to lay it all out there and be vulnerable, tell people what happened. And I know my family members were shocked um, when they listened to it. My closest friends that I've known all my life, they were blown away. They said, mate, we just didn't know that you're in that hole or that bind my family said we never knew what was happening at school with you, how you're getting into all the fights and being bullied and all that. We wondered why you'd come home with black eyes now and again, but we just thought that was playing rugby or something. But yeah, all of that. And once I really opened up on that podcast and, you know, you realize it goes out to the world as, as your podcast does. And I started getting messages from people saying how it resonated with them. A guy sitting on the subway in New York, a woman running in the mountains of Kenya, listening to it with tears running down her face. And that really opened my eyes to how by sharing our story and being vulnerable and not just boxing it all in and keeping it in within yourself, it's really important to get that out, not only for yourself, but for other people that might hear that and it might spur them on into a better life. And so, yeah, it is hard being vulnerable and you know, I had to dig deep and talk about things that I'd never spoken to, even to my wife. Um, my my mother and father were now alive. I'd never spoken to them about it. But, yeah, that podcast, I really spilled it all out there. Mm. Well, I really think that you should be proud of that sort of openness because it's certainly, you know, in our culture and certainly, as, as you said, Australian-New Zealand culture, where mental health, and particularly for males, you know, the prevalence of mental health issues in male Australian males and the suicide rates, especially in young males, is actually quite high. 
And, you know, the campaigns that we have, the Are You OK days and, you know, the the charities that we have, um, organisations, you know, Black Dog Institute and um, Beyond Blue, are trying to deal with these stigmas, which for similarly for you and for me manifested in the emotional sort of eating sugar addiction, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. But, you know, in a sense, we were masking our pain through the eating and that, as our good friend Daisy Brackenhall says, that big wall of fat, you know, that emotional barriers. But as you've done, and you should be really proud, you've stripped it all away, you've laid it bare, bare, um, and now you're paying it forward. And Jackie was just going to ask you about the book, you know, how did the idea of the book come about and paying that forward through the book and your podcast? um, Look, the book was more out of frustration, really, um, because once I was convinced that this lifestyle was so great and could help so many people, it's how you share that message. And it's just like what you guys are doing. And you would know full well when you lose a lot of weight. You just can't walk up to somebody in the shopping center that's obese or on the train and say, hey, listen, I, I see that you're overweight. Can you? Can I help you? You know, And they look at you and you're a fit, healthy looking guy and they just go, what would you know about being obese? And I've actually had someone say that to me before that didn't know me. And so my wife said, well, if you're really passionate about it, why don't you write down and share your story and just sort of relay what happened to you in your life? And, and I thought at the time, well, I don't want to really write a book about the science because there's so much about the science out there. One Google scholar, you can get the science of fasting, you can get the science of the ketogenic lifestyle or whatever it be. I just wanted to write a warts and all hard on the sleeve book about what happened to me, my backstory, how I transformed myself, how I got out of it, the sugar, the fast food, and try to resonate with people and, and let them see that if a guy like me was absolutely a shot duck, I mean, I was a dead man walking, right? And I thought if I can get people to resonate with that and actually start and retake their health, and even if it helps one person, then that's great. And even then, with the book, I never knew what was going to happen. I put it out there. I didn't know it was going to, you know, thousands of books around the world were going to go out. I had no idea. And I didn't know. And I still don't understand it some days. And then I was getting these messages from people in Norway saying, hey, we're having a book club with a, a bunch of people that are trying to lose some weight. And we're talking about your book, uh, are you able to zoom in live? And I'm going, wow, okay. And yeah, uh, the craziest thing was, was getting a message from a guy in Antarctica who said, I'm sitting here reading your book in Antarctica. And all I could think of was this crazy scientist in a little ice truck in Antarctica reading my book. So yeah, the message was getting out. And when people were resonating with it and I was seeing all these photos pop up all over social media, all over the world with people with my book, you know, the fasting highway in their hand, it was a really emotional time. And I said to my wife, I said, I never knew that something just by sharing your story could help people. And just like you're doing in this podcast, uh, you guys are helping so many people in the ketogenic lifestyle and you don't know what impact that has. And when you start getting that feedback, it's, it's really lovely. And for me personally, it's really driven me to share my passion. I'd love to do it full time as a professional job, but unfortunately I might not pay the bills as they do now. So, you know, I have two jobs. I work in farming and agriculture research, and I enjoy that. So, but certainly, um, you know, health and wellness is something I probably will do at some stage in my life before I retire as a as an occupation. Fabulous. 
<laughs> there's a group there. I'm just thinking about, you know, Australian farmers. You know, that's a that's a really undeserved, you know, overworked, stressful, full time, you know, more than many, many hours that um yeah, I'm sure that there are many farming and farmers and communities that could would certainly benefit from um from the health um the health messages that you're that you're delivering. Yeah, well, just on that, um, it's funny enough. Uh, I do have a few farmers uh, that follow us, and um, I had a message from a guy. He lives in a small country town here in Western Australia called Katani, and he said, "Oh, you better not come down here." He said, "You're not very popular with the local publican or the golf club manager." And I said, "Why is that?" He said, "Because half the town's on the fasting now, and they're not going to the pub or the golf club." <laughs> he said, oh. and, uh, I said, "Right." Uh, <laughs> But yeah, farmers being farmers, they're a tough mob and um, health and wellness is a big part of what we do. And it's really tragic when we have tough drought seasons here and, and we lose guys to suicide and stuff like that. It's hard to take. Um, but yeah, we're really mindful of the wellness side for our farmers. And a lot of them have contacted me or they've seen me at events or at farmers field days and they've just gone, mate, whatever you're doing, I want to do too. And so, yeah, I've got a few of them on the train and it's been pretty good, on, to be honest. It's been great. Would it have been different if you were not selling the, not, not selling, but, you know, the message was a little bit different, you know, in terms of the product, you know, the product being fasting. Do you think it would have been different if they came up to you and then you were selling a diet pill, you know, that if you were... If, you know, by saying, well, look, all you need to do is just compress your eating window, give your body a break, you know, she'll be right, mate. But if you said, look, here is this magic pill, you know, like just take this, you know, one to three times a day and it, it would be, you know, would the message have been different? Yeah, I think it would have been. It would have made um, more money. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. And it's, I think when people really look into intermittent fasting and they combine it with something like keto you look at how simple it really is to do i mean what do you do i mean you wake up in the morning you fast to a period in the day you know you keep your insulin as low as possible you eat in a pattern of time what makes you feel your greatest or whatever it may be you close your window and you do it again the next day in that sort of sense nothing could be more simple but it's the mindset and the mental shift that's required to do that that's the hard part for most people that are used to a lifetime of not necessarily abuse with food, but they're just so ingrained into how we're all told you've got to eat three meals a day. You've got to have five pieces of fruit a day. You know, we were told that for years. I can still hear my mother shouting at me to get out of bed in the mornings to go to work. And you have to have breakfast. You can't go to work without breakfast. All of that. And so, yeah, it is different. And I think if you tried to sell it in a way that you know, it's a, a magic potion or a magic pill, which it isn't. And I want to be quite clear about that. Uh, for me, intermittent fasting is not a silver bullet. It's not a cure for people that have addictions to food. Um, I'm really of the opinion that if you do have, you know, issues with food, you need to get them worked out beforehand, before you go to, into something like fasting, because taking the double whammy into something like a you lifestyle where you're eating once a day or whatever it may be, you can really get yourself in some serious fights inside yourself and trying to do two things at once. And that's really hard. And I know people have done that, but for me, address the problems you have with food first and then make yeah. peace with it and then find something that's sustainable 
And it's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to do that. Um, you know, and some people don't want to eat once a day. Some people don't want to do alternate day fasting, you know, all that sort of thing. You just got to find your own niche as you guys did. Yeah. Which is really interesting because it's, um, Jackie and I agree on this, that, you know, there's no one size fits all for for everybody. And that's really where we get into the problems with the dietary guidelines. That's that's just that one bit's best fits model. Jackie and I have tried different different patterns of fasting. Some worked fantastic for Jackie. They didn't work for me. We tried something else, worked really good for me and not so much for, for Jackie because it really says everybody, everybody is different. And that sort of lends itself to everybody reacts differently to these different ways of eating, you know, lower carb, um, keto, paleo, primal, you know, whatever it is. So it's, it's really goes to finding, as you said, what works for you, make it sustainable, you know, clean up, you know, just even the simple act as you did, cleaning up your eating made a huge difference. And then you then you sort of moved it to the next level with um, with the with the fasting and finding that rhythm has has worked for you, which is fantastic. Tell us a bit about the family because you know, how did Lou go? How did how did your your daughters go with with this new dad? Yeah, interesting. Actually, I always I thought about that a lot. And funny enough, when I started my podcast, I thought who better to interview as my first guest than my wife, because I got her to sort of tell people what it was like to live with somebody through a dramatic transformation, which we often forget what it's like for our partners or for our family members to see you go through that. And so some of the things she said on that were really interesting. I'd never heard her say them before either. And yeah, so for her, it was amazing. And I used to think to her, what's it like for her? I mean, she's lying in bed next to a guy that's 60 kilos less. She must wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and think, who the hell's this? And yeah, so that's the crazy side of that. My daughters, um, I've got two teenage daughters. Well, they were teenagers at the time when I started. They were a bit skeptical and often negative about it and saying, oh, dad, you know, I don't really think that's really good for you doing that. And I said, well, girls, What's not good for me is being 160 kilos and dying a young man. And I really need to do this. And I know you love me and I know you're just concerned about me, but I really need to do this for me. And once they got that message and once they saw what was happening and they, they used to say to me, dad, what's happened to your psoriasis? How come your skin, it's all cleared up. What happened? And I said, well, you know, girls, this is what I've been doing. And, and so they started believing in it. And then, after a while, they were on board, and and nowadays they'll ring me and they'll say, "Hey, Dad, we're we're they're now in their twenties." They'd ring me and they'd say, "Hey, Dad, we're catching up. Um, what time does your window open?" And so they're really accepting of it, and that's been really great for me to hear them say that. And then my my eldest daughter, who's now twenty two, she said to me, "Oh, Dad, you know, I did a little bit of fasting," and I said, "Darling, you've been fasting all your teenage years because." You'd go out at night and you wouldn't get up to three o'clock the next day. So you're already doing 16 and eight, basically. <laughs> and, uh, and then my wife, yeah, it's been really, I guess the thing for her was, as she talked about in that episode, was the clothes. The clothes was the big thing for her. She said, I became a clothes horse because all of a sudden I could wear all these great clothes. I mean, when you're 160 kilos, there's not exactly a lot of choice out there. 
and you sort of roam around looking for stuff that you love and something that looks fashionable and it just doesn't. You know, there just isn't anything that's made for a guy my size. So that was a very vulnerable thing too, to walk into a place and all of a sudden, you know, put yourself in these beautiful clothes and my mates were all commenting and nice suits and things like that because they fitted me. And when you talked about saving money, I, I, I giggled a bit because I never saved any money with doing what I did because I might have saved our coffees and stuff at the drive through but the reality was I spent a lot of money on clothes a lot of money on <laughs> shoes and I love it. I go down to get milk and I'll put on a really nice shirt. I'll, I'll, my wife will say, what the hell are you doing? You're going to get milk. And I'll say, honey, you don't understand. And now you can feel good about yourself. And now you feel good about the way you're dressed. Why wouldn't I do that? Because it's a real joy for, because for years I never cared what I wore because I just got um, whatever fitted. Yeah. There's no choice. I think we should cue the the ZZ top sharp dressed man sort of, you know, like now yeah. just to have you walking um, on the catwalk. You know, yeah, well, I had an stuff. experience that, where that, I, that um, music. I went into an Armani suit shop when I was a very obese man in Sydney, actually. And guy just walked straight up to me and he just said, mate, he said, there's nothing in the shop that's going to fit you, you know go down two, sto- two stores down, there's a big and tall guy. I mean, he didn't know I wasn't, wasn't in there to shop for my son or, or somebody else. You know, he just said, hey, mate, there's nothing in here. So I yeah. went back there when I lost the weight, right? And I was going to do the big Julia Roberts thing on him. I was going, well, I, <laughs> I had cash in my pocket and I was going to cut sick on the buying. And he wasn't there. And um, so, yeah, that was a bit of a letdown, but. Yeah, I really wanted to do that because I felt, and that's the thing. I don't know if if you guys have ever noticed it, how people treat you differently in retail from when I was morbidly obese, I would walk into a shop and it was like you're invisible. People would ignore you. Absolutely. They didn't want the problem. And now I go in there, it's, oh, hello, sir. How are you? What can I do? And that's an interesting reflection on your lived experience because you've had that, you've had the overt discrimination and now, you know, you can go back and, you know, as the same person but, you know, slightly obviously modified. But do you have this appreciation for walking in the shoes of that morbidly obese, you know, obese person? And then, you know, you can, knowing what you know and, wanting to sort of reach out to people and you know whether that's the person in the street on the bus or the train and to sort of you know you can feel what they feel but not to sort of assume we don't want to assume that everybody has a pain or a trauma or or similarly or eating disorder or something but there's a reason for that whatever that reason is but not wanting to make assumptions that they need to be fixed and I think there's been a shift in our consciousness in in the public you know about you know healthy at any size these movements of you know just this body acceptance which I sort of struggle with fundamentally on a health principle so what is you know we're philosophizing what is health but the health at any size, but just as long as you are healthy, as you were, you were a morbidly obese man, but you had healthy markers, but that was metabolically, but emotionally, you know, there was something else going on. So it's a shift in the consciousness and the the conversation and the fact that you've now had that lived experience of the former morbidly obese to the 
to the healthy the healthy person is an interesting insight which you are paying forward with your with the podcast and the books yeah i always say to people it's like being beamed up by the star trek enterprise when you're morbidly obese and then spock beams you back down on the street when you're not (laughs) Mm -hmm. thing is different your reflection is different you walk past the shop window and you go who the hell is that and because it takes a while Mm. when you go through a big transformation you have almost an identity crisis of being able to look at yourself and say, wow, is that really me? And that takes a bit of believing sometimes. And I was in the bathroom once drying my hair after I got out of the shower and I looked in the mirror and I I actually jumped because I thought somebody was standing behind me. I just didn't recognize the person that I saw. And that really freaked me out. And just going down the shops and looking in mirrors and and yeah, I'll be honest, I'll probably look in mirrors a lot more than I used to, to be honest, because I like the reflection now. Whereas when I was obese, I'd avoid every mirror. I just wouldn't look. I'd look at the ground. I'd look everywhere else. But, um, you know, and that's really difficult. But, yeah, I think once you get the weight off, it's another phase. It's another story. And, you know, I think we all see thousands of books about weight loss and, you know, shows and all that sort of thing. But very rarely do you see what it's like life after that happens and the mindset of it. Because for me, maintaining is a totally different, totally different mindset to what it is to actually lose the weight it's it's a new ball game altogether Mm. how have you coped with that yeah look pretty good um you know over two and a half years now in that tight range and and i think that's what really is the qualification of what i've done was the maintenance phase and i was able to you know not not regain the weight back. That's a big thing for people because we all know when we announce, you know, we're going on the diet, which we've all done to our families and whatever, and they all go, yeah, whatever, you know, see you back at, you know, 50 pounds in a few weeks, whatever. And I guess when I started fasting, I I thought it was too good to be true. I just didn't want to tell anybody. I told my wife and that was about it. And I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to let the results do the talking here. This is something in this. This is totally different. It's not like saying, oh, I know I'm, uh, I'm doing a Atkins diet or whatever it may be, or, you know, or whatever you choose or a soup diet or, you know, some crazy diet that nobody's ever heard of. And I think if you sort of keep it low key when you start and you lose the weight and you keep it off, people will gravitate to you more. Whereas if you loudly announce it when you just start, and then people are really going to try and drag you down. They're going to look at you and they're going to comment. And they're going to say, well, things like, well, that's not really working for you. Or it's not working very quickly. And it's going to play with your mindset. So I'm not saying don't talk to anybody about it. What I do say is tell your biggest cheerleaders, tell your wife, tell your biggest fans, tell your husband, you know, tell your best friend, your best colleague at work, you know, people you can trust. You don't need to go and tell people that are negative Nellies out there. And just, you know, you have to work through that. And that is something that we all get on our journey. We will get negatives. Not everybody is positive about what you're doing. And I think that's a reflection of them because they're wanting to hang on to that person that they that they knew, that they know. And they and so any change in our physical being is sort of perceived as a change in in ourselves. And I think it also shows up in that they're what 
they possibly need to do and address, and they don't want to look at that either. Yeah, hundred percent. And um, I think change is very hard for people to some people to accept. And those guys I talked about earlier, where they they was they were just thinking that they were losing their mate. They went to the pub with and had a great time, and the party boy at the party was just quiet in the background, hanging around the cheese board. And um, and that's just how it was. And they got used to that. Now everybody just accepts me for who I am. I mean, I haven't lost friends over it or anything like that. All the guys that I was friends with before I started still are, you know, and they don't mention it anymore. They just accept the you, you after a while. They see your image and they just accept, okay, that's Graham, that's who he is. And, mm. you know, not many people really talk to me about it anymore. It's only when you see people you haven't seen for a long time. You know, I'm talking years. I mean, I, I went to a funeral and there was guys there that I hadn't seen for 10, 15 years and we were all standing around outside the chapel and one guy said, oh, what happened to Graham Curry, that big obese guy? He surely must be dead by now. And everybody started laughing. And they said, well, he's standing right next to you. Why don't you ask him? Or <laughs> literally fell through the floor. And, you know, those sorts of things they, they catch now and again. But, yeah, I mean, Lou and my, my wife and my kids and – they just don't talk about it anymore. They, they're really proud of what I've done. They're proud of, you know, of me helping people. And, you know, I've, I've helped countless people. I, I can't tell you how many that I've, I've mentored and that sort of thing over the years now. And, and just, you know, by the podcast and the book and all that, they're really proud of that. And I'm proud of it too. But, yeah, I, I think you get to a stage where you just think there's more to life than, you know, just being obese and that sort of thing. And you, you should really try and, live your life the best you can. Mm, yeah. So, Graham, we're coming to the end now. Is there anything, well, Lou, is there anything you haven't asked that you'd like to ask? And, Graham, is there anything you would have liked to have spoken about? I was just going to say, I'm what sorry. does 2022 hold for you? What are the plans for the Fasting Highway? Oh, well, um, yeah, I mean, I'll just carry on doing what I'm doing. Um, I'll do my podcast. As you know, um, the Fasting Highway, the books out there, there possibly could be a, a second book in the works. Um, I'm sort of thinking about that now. Uh, maybe slanted a bit differently, maybe more about, you know, the after sort of life of what I did and where that's going and making it really simple because I, I, I do feel some things have got overcomplicated. Um, and you know now that there's so many different versions of, I mean, you guys would know that from the ketogenic community. And the intermittent fasting community is no different. Some people have come mm. in and tried to overcomplicate it. And I really like to keep the message simple. And I think that's really easy for newcomers to get. So there's that. Um, I've got a few talks lined up this year, various places. I hope to travel again if I ever get out of Western Australia. I live in, I live in a place called WA um, in Australia. And at the moment, we can check out any time, but we can never come back. <laughs> so that's the <laughs> difficult part about it. And I have... Um, I'm working on stuff with Jim Stevens in the States to uh, to get over there and, and do a couple of projects when I can. So, yeah, we were planning on doing that uh, back in 2020, but COVID scuttled all that. So, yeah, I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing and, and I hope that I can help a few more people. Mm -hmm. So anything else you'd like to tell the listeners that we haven't asked you or you, you feel might be important? Oh, look, my, my overall message is just keep it simple. Just keep it simple. Um, don't compare yourself to others. Comparison is a thief of joy. And when you 
look at the groups and that sort of thing and you look at the side-by-side pictures and you say, well, how come that's not happening for me? You have to understand that that person has a totally different DNA to you. They have a different brain to you. They have a different mind, how they work. They may be eating completely different things to what you're eating. And I think if you find you're struggling and things aren't working for you, really dig deep, find that honesty within you and have that conversation. Just write down and jot down the notes and say, well, what am I doing that I I really could be doing better and really some self-truth and that examination and just believe in yourself. And most of all, give it time, be patient. It's not going to change in one week, two weeks, three weeks. It took me 55 years to get to 160 kilos. It took me 15 months to get back to 100 kilos and maintain it. So that's my advice is just be patient. Excellent. Um, Where can people reach you? I mean, we we will obviously put the links to in the show notes to your book and your podcast. Uh, Where else on social media can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, uh, Graham Curry um, underscore 63. Uh, You can follow me there. Um, I guess apart from the Fasting Highway Facebook group, uh, which, you know, I know you guys have a group as well, so I don't want to talk about that too much on your podcast, but yeah, or they can come and listen to the podcast. Um, we've had some great guests. We've had 107 episodes there. And and when you, if you want to hear about the message about you can eat whatever you want with intermittent fasting, a really good one to listen to is the recent one I did last week with Jim Stevens, and we really delved into that. So that might sort of get you into a better place of how you think about that. Um, but apart from that, yeah, feel free to drop me a line or, or come and join us, and, um, and we'll love to hear from you. Great. I know you 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 mentioned some of this just before we asked you how people can get in touch with you, but we like to leave our listeners with three top tips. So what would your three top tips be? Definitely be patient, number one. Give it time. Yeah. I say to everybody, yep. six to 12 months minimum to give it a full evaluation. Secondly, don't compare yourself to others. You're your own experiment of one. And thirdly, find that self-love for you and just find your why stick with it and use that as your motivation. And once you get there, just really get that self-care going and love yourself first, not in an egotistical way. Just have that love for you and have those self-affirmations every day. I know that's more than three, but I hope that helps. No, that's actually about eight right now, but that's okay because um, Graham's an overachiever. Um, and not forgetting that we don't compare. Comparison is the thief of joy. You need to really dig deep. As you said, believe in yourself, give it time, be patient. So I think we have really um, given the community a big group hug um, with this wonderful story. You know, just a fantastic journey. I think, you know, again, you should be proud because not only of your own journey to wellness, you know, in a recovery sort of way, recovering from sugar food addiction but you have as you did laid it out made yourself vulnerable and the gift that keeps on giving is you're paying this forward now you know in book and your podcast and the community that you're building but just how it resonates with um with really finding your why and graham and we thank you and lou for being the why your why 
and without her, behind every good good man is an even better woman. Um, and for you, that's your why. And we thank you um, for sharing your story today. Oh, look, thank you so much. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to join you today. And I look forward to having you guys on my podcast one day. And we could talk all things keto. It'd be great. That'd be great. That's great. Thank you. Thank you we'll for joining us. That. Okay, bye. Thanks, Graham. Jackie, it really resonates with me, the power of Graham's story, because similarly, I've walked in his shoes and I have walked in his shoes as a morbidly obese woman and I've walked in his shoes having lost the 60 kilos, 130 pounds as well. So there's so many parallels. It's almost like a sliding door moment between myself and Graham where it was really interesting where he had turned to his wife Lou and the power the focus the love the devotion he found his why Mm -hmm. and that was just so you know such a wonderful thing that he was able to crystallize verbalize and make that change um to do that yeah because sometimes we we have these thoughts about we know we need to change but it's never it was just so powerful and and even when i listened back to that recording i just thought wow it was just a wow moment wasn't it it makes you goosebumpy listening to what he said he just knew he it was it was for love oh (laughs) i know but it it really goes to I knew that I had to make a change and three years later, so um, no, actually, Jackie, it was five years. How bad is my math? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it was five years after I'd had my weight loss surgery. Jackie, I can't even do that. Oh, my goodness gracious me. No, 2012 I had my weight loss surgery. He made the change in 2018. So it's six years. What if I had, you know, found fasting, time-restricted eating back in 2012 when I was at my heaviest? Yeah, it wasn't so known then. So you probably, the chances of you coming across it would have been less. And would you have done it anyway, do you think? Which which is interesting. So let's get to, you know, the why, because that was a very powerful motivator. And, and this also speaks to Jen Unwin and, um, you know, David Unwin, and it's that sense of hope. He turned to his, turned to Lou. He knew that he, things were out of control. If he doesn't do anything, then, you know, there was dire consequences. So, but I'd had little trickles of of that sort of external, you know, sense of, you know, I was standing, I was a college professor standing up there as a morbidly obese woman, you know, I was a single parent, um, you know, there was some strong pulls there, but, you know, I knew that I had to do something, but again, I didn't know what to do. So it just was obviously me over-intellectualizing <laughs> and finding um, and evaluating the evidence um, about what I could what I could do. Yeah, and I think maybe if it was 2018, you might have done something different. 
Oh, definitely. I think you would have found there would have been more resources available to you. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. But it was interesting because before surgery, obviously pre-surgery, you always do that that weight loss um, month to sort of help reduce the fatty liver. I had actually maybe two years before been on a on a shake one of those shake diets, which was when you think about it, was a low calorie, but also low carb ish as well, focusing on fats and protein and but also low calorie. So there were elements there, but never really explicitly found you know a Robert Atkins book. So um, yeah, it, and and it, and if you think about it, so. I I keep thinking about this. When I was about 12, um, my aunt used to live way down um, in Plymouth, past Plymouth, and we would go and stay with her in the summer. So this was actually, um, I'm trying to think when it was. No, I was actually, yeah, 12 or 13. Um and I went to stay with her and she said, we're going to do, and I'm sure, and this is, this could be my memory messing around with me. We're going to do the Atkins diet. And all we're going to eat is meat and oranges and grapefruit. And we did that for a while. And I did lose weight, but it just, that wasn't sustainable. That, but it's almost, no. it's almost a carnivore diet, isn't it? Absolutely. But also, I forgot where I was going with this, but that was quite interesting. Um, but also, we we come across things and we don't necessarily pick up on the importance of them at the time. So another thing that happened to me was uh, in 2016, I had read uh, Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Body and he, he was advocating a, a sort of low-carb, diet you know having eggs for breakfast and lots of different things like that and I and stopping the potatoes and the pasta and I had done that and I talked myself out of it by about after about three weeks where I was really missing potatoes and bread saying I asked a doctor and I said what do you think about this and he of course went no you must eat your carbs and I was like well that's great I'll eat my carbs but you know we come across these things and we we sort of dip our toe into them or we hear about them, but it's not necessarily the right time or the right way that the message is put across that makes you take the action. So you may yeah, have absolutely. come across things, like you said, you, you came across these shakes, but you, you wouldn't have known that that was specifically what it was doing, lowering the carbs. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's... At the time, you know, you're opening yourself up to sort of, well, what is, what is the benefits? What is the risks? You know, having that discussion and, you know, finding the stories. And I think that that sort of speaks to what are the stories that we tell ourselves to keep us, to keep us on track or off plan. And that was really resonates again with, you know, Renee Jones, who sort of tells us about, you know, what are the stories that we, we tell ourselves. It was interesting, Jackie, because today, was actually concluding getting back into fasting. So inspired by Graham to sort of dip my toe back into the waters and to sort of, as I said in the newsletter, the readers will um, will find, you know, sitting in my sadness and really not 
going back into loophole thinking, you know, because I can drive that Mack truck through it or for UK listeners, I can drive that Mack lorry through, through a loophole as, you know, as wide as I can. And it's been really powerful to exercise my fasting muscle because as the listeners will know, last year I did 188 days of alternate day fasting and had great results. And it's like, come on, Louise, put your big girl pants on and let's get back into fasting. Um, You know, let's move out of that and stop self-soothing in a negative, you know, in, in a sad way. But let's transition back to your strength. And you have a very good, well-practiced um, fasting muscle. So it was not that hard. And I don't know why I do this, Jackie. I build it up, you know. I make it bigger than a mountain, you know, making a mountain out of a molehill. And, yeah, it was actually really good to break my fast with a absolutely delicious, one of my absolute all-time favorites, lamb chop. Mm. So on the barbecue. And, um, yeah, just that little fatty morsel um, was absolutely delicious. Yeah. And I don't know if it's anything we've been messaging backwards and forwards, but also inspired by Graham, I decided I've been actually listening to some more podcasts around fasting. And uh, and I have made a plan. And we got on the call this morning and you said you've just broken your fast from your 48-hour fast and I said well I'm 36 hours into my 48 hour fast so we've both started a 48 hour fast we've both done it on the same day even though it's a different time and um so we're back on we're back on plan so yeah and I've got a new plan it's really good yeah yeah you've got a plan yeah your your new plan and certainly my plan was to sort of really move back into the alternate day fasting. But I think after hearing what you've been listening to on the podcast, what is your plan, Jackie? I might be adopting your plan. <laughs> so my plan is actually based on the fasting method um, way is I am going to try two 48-hour fasts a week. And the reason I'm going to do that is because the challenge for me which was what happened when you were doing the alternate day fasting is having supper at home and being around when the boys are there and so I'm going to do the 48 hours because actually in the two 48 hour fasts I'm only missing two meals and one of them well actually what I'd planned was the both of them are when I go to taekwondo but actually taekwondo is moving from a Thursday to a Tuesday so, yeah, that's uh, so now I don't know when I'm going to break my fast if I start on a Sunday. <laughs> I might be doing a bit mm. longer. But with the backup of if I can't do that, then I will do some shorter day fasts. So if I've done a 48 and then the rest of the week I can't fit in another 48, then I'll do two shorter fasts, which might be sure. my voice is going funny, isn't it? which might be a 24-hour or a 36-hour or a 42-hour as well. Yeah, that's a really good plan because I think I was looking at doing the alternate day fasting, but it was back to where's my accountability buddy? My accountability buddy is in Bangkok, but he also needs me to be accountable because as we're sort of moving into this transition and finding what's the best way to eat, 
and to keep busy, particularly on notice of an evening. And if I can certainly not eat, <laughs> then I can keep busy with, you know, maybe doing some more um, some more work or some study or, you know, other things like, you know, reading or Netflixing, just actually taking some time to relax. It's actually a really good a good opportunity to free up some time. I have found a local butcher around the corner from me, an Italian, um, two Italian brothers who had, whose father ran this butcher shop. Absolutely delicious. You know, there's beautiful meats in the in the cabinet. And I got talking to him today, interestingly, he's a diabetic. And I went, oh, well, you're perfect. You know, you've got some delicious protein here. Oh, I don't like eating meat, he says. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What, so what do you eat? Oh, I had a bread roll. I, I had pasta and um, I'm going, oh, no. Anyway, so um, I said, you know that I've lost 60 kilos. You know, I've well kept off 60 kilos by eating your delicious, you know, pro- fatty protein. Oh, really? That's inspiring. So, um, yeah. But he, yeah, he won't, he won't come at eating meat. But anyway, it's it's an interesting conundrum because I really want to move back into familiar territory with having the delicious proteins that are available, that are satiating, that are nutrient dense, and that can help me, you know, stabilize certainly my weight, which has crept up a little bit since being back. And I know that that's the same for. Same for Andrew as well, that we have um, really enjoyed, obviously, our time eating eating well together. But now we need to move back into regaining some stability and, um, yeah, back into, back into that safe space again. Yeah. And for our listeners, we, have, we do a weekly newsletter, which includes the parts of our journey, doesn't it? We just do a little catch-up of what's gone on for us in the week and how we're dealing with things sometimes. So if you want to hear more, you can email us at podcast at fabulously keto. If you want to go on our newsletter list. Yeah. And it's been an interesting reflection. So thank you, Graham, for really inspiring us to get back on that fasting highway and which we will have in the show notes, Jackie, all the resources that, that Graham mentions in the, in his interview. So where can the listeners find the show notes? The show notes are at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero seven six. Well, we have prattled on a little bit we today, Jackie. We did. We did ramble. But, yeah, to be fair, you haven't been on very much recently and I have been doing some very short intros and outros. So we've sort of put them all together in one. Okay. Well, that's really good. Well, thank you, Jackie. It's been wonderful. Thank you. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. 
Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. <laughs>